Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Tonight we indeed sing the words of Psalm 103 to you, holy God. We praise you for your care for us. We praise you for the glory of this beautiful weekend as we watch the colors change and we get outside and we enjoy your beautiful world. We thank you for the good gifts you give us. We thank you for the good gifts that you give us that we're able to give back. We are honored that we played a small role in Brianna's story, that she was able to be with her family during a season of grief. And we pray you continue to comfort her and her family in the loss of her grandparent. We think of others in our community who have suffered loss, grandparents and parents, aunts and uncles who are ill. We know that we come from a community where people are spread far and wide, but we hold them in our hearts and we think of them often. We pray your continued healing on Megan Jenkins after brain surgery. Restore her to full health and bring her back among us. We pray for Casey Kaysen's father as he continues to recover from his surgery and the significant diagnosis of extensive cancer. We pray for Casey as he waits. We pray for Sue Kong, whose mother is in Korea and has thyroid cancer, and Sue feels so far away. God, we pray your healing mercies in the life of her mother and give peace to Sue and to many of us who are far away from people we know who are struggling and in pain. We thank you that you are a God who cares well for us, that you are our shepherd, that you will not lose any that have been assigned to you. We thank you that our community this week was able to practice confession, that we were able to speak aloud the sins that were hanging around us, entangling us, to use the words of Hebrews, preventing us from running the race that you have called us to run. We thank you that we wrote these sins down and threw them away, that we deleted things from our computers, that we threw away things that were in our houses, in our dorm rooms, and in our offices, that we were convicted, that we stopped watching certain things and listening to other things and participating in other activities. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you move through us because you desire a better life for us. You desire for us to know what it is like to be set free from addiction and set free from sin and to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And so we pray that you will help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, our beautiful Savior, the one that we adore, the one that our soul must sing. We pray for our community as we turn from Confession Week to Unlearn Week, a week in when we look at racism ethnocentrism, sexism, and how these things have infiltrated into our hearts and minds and communities. So Holy Spirit, keep working in us that as we hear testimonies this week about the effects of racism and as we're invited to become anti-racist, Lord, may we stand up for what is right. May we speak against people who are speaking ill of others. May we move from ugliness to beauty. And God, as we turn again to your word tonight and look at the life of David, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will speak through this story, that you will teach us what we need to be taught, you will convict us where we need to be convicted and encourage us where we need to be encouraged. 
Speak through your word and into our lives. We pray it through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And everybody says, amen. We have been in the book of 1 Samuel and we continue to be in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 25 is what we're looking at. This can be found in your pew Bibles on page 234. Page 234. Spread them around, there are Bibles there. Does anybody need a Bible and not have one? Y'all need a Bible? Anybody not have access? We're gonna be looking at the text, so you're gonna wanna have a Bible open. All right, is anybody in desperate need, can't find a Bible, can't look on one? You're all good? Gospel choir, I'm looking at you, you good? We're good? Everybody out here are good? People in the bays, we're good? We are people of the book, it's good to have a book. 234, 1 Samuel 25, we'll start to read at verse two. Now remember that David is on the lamb from Saul, right? Saul wants him dead, he's been pursuing him, and just before the story that we're gonna read, David had an opportunity to kill Saul, and because the spirit worked in his life and he knew what was true and he knew what was right, he did not take advantage of that opportunity. He did not kill Saul. So he and his guys are out in the wilderness and they've kind of come up with an interesting side business because when you're in the wilderness and you're just kind of trying to hide, you need to find some source of income. And so what David and his uh, band of 600 people have done is figured out that if they protect all the shepherds that are out in the wilderness, when the time comes, they are due some payment. So you could call them Good Samaritans, you could call them racketeers, kind of depends on your perspective. But anyway, they've run this little side business and it is sheep shearing time, which means festival time, which means payment time. And that's where we pick up this really interesting story, verse two, 1 Samuel 25. And then we're gonna be walking through the text together, all right? There was a man in Maon whose property was in Carmel, so already you know he's rich because his property extends beyond from where he lives. The man was very rich. Thank you. <laughs> he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, okay? Very rich. 3,000 sheep, that's one, uh, that's a sheep or a goat for every Calvin student. Congratulations. Everybody gets a sheep. Hey, you get a sheep and you get a sheep. And, all right? <laughs> that's how many, all right? So picture that. That many, that's a lot of sheep. 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the name of the man was Nabal. It's very interesting that the writer chooses to say, first, this is what he owned, this is how much stuff he had, before it gives us his name. By doing that, the writer is saying, this man is defined by his stuff. This man loves what he owns. This is who this man is. The man's name was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. Nabal means fool. A little hint to what's coming next. Abigail, Abigail means what, Abigail? Yes, very good. Any other Abigails in the house? Woo! All right, it's a great name. Because this is why. The woman was clever and beautiful. 
right? That's good. Now, clever in the Hebrew doesn't mean like clever, like manipulative. It actually means she is wise. She thinks things through. She is prudent. She is thoughtful. She has good insight. That's really what's going on here. And when it says clever and beautiful, the word that's used here to describe her beauty is the exact same word we had a few chapters back that described David. Remember when when David came up and he was anointed, right? The word that was used to describe him there, beautiful, handsome, good-looking, of good form, is the same word used here for Abigail. That's what we're talking about. But the man was surly and mean. He was a Calebite. There's a little play on words. Caleb is the Hebrew word for dog. (laughs) Sorry if your name is Caleb. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So he hears the time has come, it's party time, it's festival time. Nabal is shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men. And 10 men is called a minion. It's a number of completion. Even now, if you have 10 Jewish men, you have enough people to have a complete worship service. So to send 10 men was a representation of the rest of them. The 10 represented the 600. So he sends a minion of 10 young men. And David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. Thus you you shall salute him. Peace be to you. Peace be to your house. Peace be to all that you have. Three pieces. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, they'll tell you. Therefore, yet my young men find favor in your sight, for we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. Now, David is very strategic. He obviously, he has a heart for shepherds and sheep. He understands this business. He knows how hard it is. But he also understands that if he protects the flocks of Nabal, who else is gonna be hanging around those flocks. Everybody, right? Because if he offers good service to the most wealthy person around, everyone else is going to say, well, let's go hang out there, right? Let's bring the sheep. Come on, let's go. Let's go hang out where David's men are. It's safe there. No bandits. Give whatever you have to your servants and to your son David. Sounds rather humble. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants, Who's David? Who's the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are breaking away from their masters. Now, did he not know who David was? Did he not know the son of Jesse? Of course he knew who this was. Of course he did which is why he says there are many servants breaking away from their masters because he knows that David is on the lamb from Saul. He knows the whole situation. Then he says this, shall I take my bread and my water and the meat that I have butchered for my shears and give it to the men who come from I do not know where? Hebrew scholars point out that there are eight personal pronouns in this one sentence. (laughs) Shall I give my meat and my, all my, my stuff? I like my stuff. You're not getting my stuff. That's what Nabal says. So David's young men turned away. And one uh, translator puts this world about, like, oh. Like, 
that kind of move. Like, oh, really? Really, that's what you're going to say? Oh. So there's this sense of, like, they understand what's going to happen, and they almost can't wait to get back to David. Like, oh, you are never going to believe what he said. So they whirl about. David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his man, every man strapping a sword. And every one of them strapped on their sword. David also strapped on his sword three times. Strapping a sword, strapping a sword, strapping a sword. 400 men went up with David. 200 remained with the baggage. And you got to wonder, like, were they like, no, I got the baggage, I'm good. Or were they like, oh, I want to go. One of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, um, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to salute our master, and he shouted insults at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we never missed anything when we were in the fields, as long as we were with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the while we were keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this, and consider what you should do. For evil has been decided against our master and against all his house. He is so ill-natured that no one can speak to him. And the Hebrew there for ill-natured means good for nothing. He's good for nothing. Which is why, by the way, Abigail, I'm talking to you. Because we all know what he's like. But I'm just going to lay this out for you as, as he says, therefore know this and consider what you should do. Just think about it. Then, 18, Abigail hurried. Hurried. Let's just stop for a minute on that word. She hurried. Here she is, the wife of one of the wealthiest people around. She has servants upon servants upon servants. And if you have that status in your clan, you do not hurry. Other people hurry. You don't hurry. This is a bit like when the father in the parable of the prodigal son runs to his son. Fathers didn't do that. You ran to the father. The father did not run to you. In the same way, it's very unusual here that Abigail hurries. She realizes what's happening. She understands that she has to act quickly and shows her insight, her wisdom, her prudence. And this is what she prepares. 200 loaves two skins of wine, five sheep ready dressed, five measures of parched grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 fig newtons. <laughs> so I want to see if you're paying attention. Because who doesn't love a good fig newton when you're supposed to be raiding somebody? So look at what Abigail does. You can see her wisdom even in how she prepares the food. There is food for now, the loaves of bread and the meat need to be eaten relatively soon, but just about everything else can be saved for later. So she's saying to David, I'm gonna give you food for now, but I'm also giving you food to sustain you long-term. Parched grain was grain that you could store for a long time. Cakes of raisin, cakes of figs, those could last for a long time. In fact, there are archeological digs that they go in, they go in somebody's cellar, they crack the seal off a jar of something and they can still find figs that are ready to eat. Makes you wanna be an archeologist right now, free figs. <laughs> she loaded them on donkeys, and we're gonna stop for there for just a minute because we anticipate like, oh, everybody had a donkey. No, only the wealthy people had donkeys. They were the Mercedes Benz of the ancient Near East. 
only wealthy people had donkeys. So in a couple of months when the Christmas cards come out and it's like Joseph is like leading Mary on a donkey, no, no donkey. Because Joseph and Mary were poor, yes. And when Jesus is in Holy Week, how does he get his donkey? He has to borrow it, right? So she loads them up on donkeys and says to her young, donkeys, plural, okay, she's swimming in it. She says to her young man, go on ahead of me, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal because she is wise. (laughs) Because she is thoughtful, because she is beautiful, because she understands truth. And she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain. David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now, David had said, this is what he's, you can just picture him the whole ride down the mountain, this is what he's saying. Surely it was in vain that I protected this fellow in the wilderness. Nothing was missing. All the he returned to me, evil for good. God do so to David, and more also, if by tomorrow morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. All right? He has strapped on his sword, people. He is mad. In fact, um, there's a Hebrew idiom. It's a bit crass. Um, when he says, uh, so much as one male of all who belong to him, The King James actually translates this correctly. The literal translation of that is, one who pisses against a wall. (laughs) And it shows how angry he is that he resorts to that kind of language. He is so angry, he uses this really slang, crash term for men, right? We don't have any of those in our contemporary language. So, So it just shows the anger. Like, he is so frustrated. He is riled up. He is ready. The adrenaline is flowing. He and his guys, they're marching down the mountain. They've got their swords. They are ready to go. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and alighted from the donkey and fell before David on her face, bowing to the ground. Did she do this to anybody else? ever probably in her life? Probably not. She fell at his seat and said, upon me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. The first word in Hebrew is mine, me, I, me, I did it. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. My Lord, do not take seriously this ill-natured fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. (laughs) You like Abigail more and more as the story goes on. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of whom my Lord you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, since the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from taking vengeance with your own hand. And we don't know right now if she knows about the incident with Saul. We don't know if that's what she's referring to or if she's referring to this right here. Because her people... Her shepherds worked with his people and his guardians. It was very likely that a lot of these stories about David were circulating back to the people. It's very likely she knew everything that was happening here, especially considering what she says next. Since the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from taking vengeance with your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be like Nabal, Now let this present, the Hebrew word is blessing, barcha, 
that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for Yahweh will certainly make my Lord a sure house. And that means um, someone with a strong lineage, with a strong line. And she uses a little idiom there, the sure house, which actually refers back long ago to when Eli was a priest. Eli was the guy who reared Samuel, remember? And it was prophesied that there would be a sure house that would take over the line from Eli since Eli didn't do so well. So she's using a very particular turn of phrase. Be a sure house. Because my Lord, 28, is fighting the battles of Yahweh, which echoes something that David said when he was fighting Goliath. And evil should not be found in you so long as you live. And the Hebrew word there is both a verb that looks forward and looks back both. So it's, you haven't been evil and you shouldn't be evil. So she's not only saying this isn't how you lived before, but it's not how you should live now. Evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. And then 29, if anyone should rise up to pursue you, to seek your life, you know, if there's anybody out there who happens to be doing this for you right now, Saul, if there's anybody out there who's pursuing you and trying to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living under the care of the Lord Yahweh your God. Now, the bundle of the living was a reference to what shepherds used to count their sheep at the end of the season. They would count the living sheep and they would take stones and they would have uh, like a burlap sack and they would put a stone in for every sheep. And so when she says, may your life be caught up in the bundle of the living, she's saying, may you be cared for the way a shepherd cares for a sheep. Safe, you're counted, you're protected, you're in. Your struggles are done. May you be bound up in the bundle of the living. But the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. What is she talking about? Right? She knows his story. She knows what's happening. She knows he's a shepherd. May you be like a sheep that's well cared for and counted as living. May your enemies be flung out like from the hollow of a sling. When the Lord has done to my Lord all the good that he has spoken concerning you, which means she knows the promises, and has appointed you prince over Israel, which shows that she knows she was anointed, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pains of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for having saved himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you to meet me today. Blessed be your good sense, and blessed be you. Three blesseds. So it went, peace, 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 strap on your sword, strap on your sword, strap on your sword. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Blessed be you who have kept me today from blood guilt and from avenging myself by my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who's restrained me from hurting you, Unless you had hurried and come to meet me, and then we get a little bit, he's still not quite calmed down. Truly by morning, there would not have been left a label so much as one male. Expletive deleted. 
Then David received from her what she had brought him, and he said to her, go up to your house in peace. And we hear the echoes of the psalm in this next line. I have heeded your voice. I have granted your petition. So Abigail came to Nabal. He was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. Was he a king? Would he ever be a king? Did the future king almost kill him? Is he a fool? Yes. Nabot's heart was merry within him, for he was a fool and he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light, once again showing her wisdom. I'm not going to tell you this in some alcoholic haze. I'm going to wait till tomorrow morning when you're just a bit hungover. <laughs> it's always good to receive hard news when you're not feeling well. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, another picturesque image, his wife, the Hebrews do not mess around, people. They just call it like they see it. His wife told him these things, and his heart died with him, and he became like a stone, right? Do you see how the image of the stone keeps working its way through this story? About 10 days later, who strikes Nabal? Yahweh, the Lord, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has judged the case of Nabal's insult to me and has kept back his servant from evil. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal upon his own head. Then David sent and wooed Abigail to make her his wife. Because David, too, a smart man. He's like, she's that smart, she's got that much courage, she's got that much character, and she's easy on the eyes. Win. Win. He's like, I'm in. When David's servant came to Abigail at Carmel, they said, David sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. She rose and bowed down with her face to the ground and said, Your servant is a slave to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Abigail got up and hurriedly and rode away on a donkey. Vroom, vroom. (laughs) Her five maids attended her, right? So don't worry about all Abigail. She's good. She went after the messengers of David and became his wife. And we'll end it right there. Is it that such a... Oh, do you want to read the next verse? <laughs> yeah, he marries somebody else. Um, and he does that kind of politically, and they never mentioned again. And then Saul... I'll just... This is no extra charge. Um, <laughs> Saul, remember, back gave uh, Michael to him, and we'll talk about Michael a little bit later um, in two weeks when it's homecoming weekend and we have worship at 11 o'clock in the morning. Heads up. Two weeks, 11 o'clock, bring your mom, bring your dad, bring your grandparent, bring someone off the street. We don't really care. Um, so Saul gives Michael, David's wife, to Palti, son of Laish. So Saul had no recourse. To, I mean, he had no reason to do this. I mean, they were still married, and it was a polygamous culture, and he could have kept going. But Saul just did that to be mean, because that's kind of how he had become at that point. So there you go, no extra charge. Doesn't really pertain to the story at hand, which is about Abigail and Nabal. So the story begins, and we have, we have a big problem. We have two fools, right? We have one fool who is consumed with greed. He loves his stuff. He loves himself. He is greedy. He is happy to be greedy. People come to him and say, we want to share your stuff? We want to share in the barbecue? He says, no, it's my stuff. You don't get to share 
We have another guy over here who is consumed by his rage. He is furious. He has been insulted. He's worked hard all season. He and his men are hungry, and they are going to get what's coming to them. Both of them are consumed in the moment. Nabal isn't thinking long-term. He's not thinking, what's going to happen to me if I say no to these people? David's not thinking, what's going to happen to me if I actually kill this guy for no real good reason? They are consumed in the moment. They are, as Eugene Peterson says, both full of themselves and empty of God. The beauty that once was used to describe David is completely gone from him, and what we see in this incident is ugly and ugly. And these two men are full of themselves and empty of God. And that's right when the temptation comes in. And we have a few of the deadly sins in technicolor display. Over here we have greed, and over here we have anger, and in both of them we have pride. And when the deadly sins are at work, the tempter does not want you to be thinking long-term. He does not want you to think about how are you going to feel tomorrow morning when you wake up? How are you going to feel in two weeks when you get caught? How are you going to feel in two years when the story comes out? When temptation comes in, it comes in and wants you to stay right here in the moment, right here in desire, right here in the ugliness to be full of yourself and empty of God. That's when the tempter comes in. Think about right now. Think about how it feels. Think about how how hard you worked. Think about how angry you are. Think about right now. And so you have these two egos on a collision course until in steps Abigail. Abigail, who plays the role of prophet in this story, Because Abigail understands what's happening. Abigail understands that there is a big story being told. And when she gets down on the ground and kneels before David and puts her face down on the ground, she is not bowing down to David the renegade. She is bowing down to David the king. And in that initial act, she shows him, I know who you really are. I know your story. I know its ins and outs. I know who you are. And you can see that she ticks it off as she bows before him. I know that you are anointed. I know that you killed Goliath. I know that Saul is in hot pursuit of you. I know that someday you will be king. I know this. I know your story. Your story is much larger than this incident. David, you do not want to go in and kill this guy and have it just haunting you for the rest of your life. If you do this now, David, your stomach will be full, but you will be sick to your stomach for weeks. David, this is not who you are. She steps into the ugliness and meets it with beauty. And I'm not talking about how she looked. She meets it with the beauty of the larger narrative. She meets it with the beauty of his full story. She meets it with the beauty of who she knows God has called David to be. 
We have a staff meeting every week for a campus ministry staff, and the eight or nine of us who work full and part-time in campus ministries get together on Wednesday, and we talk about different things. And at our staff meeting this week, one of our staff members raised an issue with someone else in the Calvin Village, and she needed a little advice on how to approach this particular situation. And I was angry on her behalf. I was righteously indignant that she had to do this. And I was like, strap on your sword, strap on your sword, strap on your sword, let's go, right? <laughs> take him out. You mess with my people, I'll take you down, right? That's, I was like, got it, let's go, bring it. Someone else on staff wisely was like, um, probably not the best way to go. Maybe we should do this. I think maybe this would be a little better. And right in the moment, I was like, oh yeah, that's way better. That's a lot better. And the next day, this staff member and I had a, had a one-on-one, and I said to her, I am so grateful that you spoke up. Thank you so much. It was a risk for you. I'm your boss. And you spoke truth into my life, and you spoke truth into our community, and it's going to be better because you did that. It was an Abigail moment where he saw the ugliness that was bubbling up in me, and he just stopped it with beauty. And he said, no, 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 remember what we're trying to do here. Remember who we are. We need those Abigail moments, don't we? When you're having a really heavy day and you're not feeling well and class isn't going well and maybe you forgot to bring your book to class and you're kind of lost or maybe there was a quiz and you forgot about the quiz and you're just feeling heavy and then you go to choir practice and you sing a song about rejoice in the Lord always. At the beginning, you're like, yeah, rejoice in the Lord always. But then gradually, you're confronted by the beauty. And not just the beauty of the music, but the beauty of the larger story. That says, yeah, you didn't do well on a quiz. Yeah, you forgot your book. You got a cold. Guess what? God's still in charge of the world. God holds you in the palm of his hand. So we rejoice in the Lord always, not because of the little circumstances of our lives, but we rejoice in the Lord always because of who he is. You have those moments, don't you, where it just kind of breaks through, where you're feeling kind of heavy and you're feeling kind of down and you're feeling kind of alone and then someone slips in next to you and says, I'm with you. How you doing? Hi, Andy. Hey. Are you good? Yeah. Yeah. And gives you just some love and says, how's your life going? Talk to me about you. And you just think, oh, I'm cared for in this community. It's beautiful. And you remember you're part of a larger story. Or you have those times when you're in the dining hall. And you're sitting there and all of a sudden you realize, oh, ice cream! And the beauty just breaks through because you remember they had that like cart with the frozen things in it and they got the soft serve and you just like, all you need is a little beauty. (laughs) All you need is a little beauty. Because there's so much ugliness. There's so much ugliness. You know, when you read about what's happening in Somalia and the famine and how to escape one place and get to safety in Kenya, they risk 
being beaten by bandits. They risk being raped. They have to go through incredible ugliness to get to even the hope of beauty. Or you read again in our world about the Philippines and how there's just horrible, horrible rain and people are dying. Or read today about riots in Cairo and I think immediately about my friends who are in Cairo trying to plant a church. I think, what, what's happening with them? What's their life like? Are they okay? And this week, as we think about Unlearn Week, we think about the ugliness of racism. We think about how we sit in class and if our professor speaks with an accent, we feel like, oh, what's he doing? Like, you're in America, learn English. And we're confronted by the ugliness. The man really probably speaks three other languages. And yet we judge him because we don't think he's meeting our standards. Or we go into a space of worship and we think, well, they're not doing it my way. This isn't a song that I know. This isn't the way I would do it. And we're confronted by our own ugliness. And so we need the Holy Spirit to come in and remind us of who we are and turn us from ugliness to beauty. And it can be things like choir rehearsal and sitting with a friend and ice cream and community and images. As you came in and you noticed on the background of the slides, we've had images of beauty. Every image on there was taken by a member of the Calvin community. Some of them from right here on campus, some of them from across the world. But sometimes you're caught by the beauty. And it just reminds you, I'm part of a larger story, I'm part of a larger narrative. It reminds you that you are part of a story in which God loved you so much that he came in and took on flesh and he faced the ugliness. He took on the ugliness of depression and despair and the ugliness of loneliness and the ugliness of not knowing how the food is going to be, where it's going to come from. The ugliness of rape, the ugliness of bandits, the ugliness of racism. The ugliness that we struggle with this week, that we confessed out. He took all of that ugliness on him and bore it on the cross. And Isaiah tells us that he had no form or loveliness that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. One from whom people hide their faces. And he took that on for us. He took on that ugliness for us. And when he was on this earth, and he moved, and he touched, and he healed people, no one stayed away because he wasn't good looking. Because the beauty of Jesus Christ is a beauty that transforms. It's a beauty that transcends. It's a beauty that moves right into the ugliness and smacks it with beauty. 
There is no ugly part in us that Jesus Christ can't move into and say, I redeem this. I take this and I will make it beautiful. I will take your suffering and I will turn it into beauty. I will take your pain and I will redeem it because that is what I do. That is who I am. I am a beautiful savior. I save you. Did you notice at the end of the story? So Abigail gets up. She gets on her donkey and she goes with her maids. What happens to the thousands of sheep and goats? Who gets those? Take a guess. Who gets those? David. Yes. David, because of his obedience, because he was arrested by beauty and understood his larger narrative, because Abigail spoke truth into his life and said, you are more than this. You are made for more than this. There is a big story here and I'm gonna claim it for you and remind you of it because Abigail spoke truth into his life and because David listened, he became one of the wealthiest people around. He went from being a renegade who had to beg for handouts to try and share in the feast of others to somebody who could throw his own feast. Because when you remember your larger narrative and you listen to the voice of God, when it comes to you in those Abigail moments, God honors you. When you lay down the ugliness and you pick up the beauty, God honors that when we stop acting out of our own ego and greed and pride and ego. And we say, blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. The Lord comes and blesses us. The blessing of the Lord is beauty and bounty. Will you pray with me? Our God, we thank you for our sister Abigail, for the courage she showed, for the beauty of her character, for how she knew your story and how she was able to speak it over David and invite him back into it, how she was able to call the beauty out of him. So Lord, we pray for Abigail moments when we're just caught by beauty and pointed to a larger story of a creating God who redeems us in Jesus Christ and continues to make us holy by the work of the Holy Spirit. Set us free, gracious God, to be people who live the whole story and long for the day when every tongue and tribe and race and nation sings holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might. We pray this through Jesus Christ. Amen.